Hey y'all, welcome back. It's great to be back with you. And uh, we'll continue our study of 1 Corinthians with chapter 5 today. Uh, I want to review where we've been before I get there though, because it's important to see this as a letter. It's important to see the flow to understand what's going on, as we've already seen in the first four chapters. So as a recap of the first four chapters, we've got Paul saying, okay, I'm writing to this, this new church that, uh, that I just preached the gospel in not long ago, and, and I thank God for you, and you're doing great, and you're so wonderful, and aren't you special? And, but the problem is you got these divisions. And it seems like probably what was going on was, you know, I, like say I'd baptize somebody, and then they'd say, well, I'm, I'm of Ben. I, I follow Ben's teaching because he baptized me. And then somebody else would be following Bob. And so then Bob and Ben don't have exactly the same teaching. And so the church is divided because people are following different teachers and they disagree and they're arguing with each other over Ben's teaching versus Bob's teaching. And so rather than naming Ben and Bob, Paul says, Paul, Apollos, Peter, or Cephas, depending on the translation you're looking at. And he says, Paul did not die for you. He, Paul wasn't crucified for you. You weren't baptized in the name of Paul. Stop it. Later, he tells us he's using him and Apollos as names in there so that he doesn't have to call people out by name, really. But the point is, the church is split over this different teaching. And he says the root of that is carnal thinking, worldly thinking, fleshly thinking. He uses two different words, and some people see a distinction here. I really don't as much, and, and if there is one, it's bad for the church, not you're better than them. You should be better, and you're not, is the, the issue. So the natural man, the, the man with his mind only in this world, it can't understand spiritual things. It, it just doesn't exist for him. It's a completely foreign concept. He can't make any sense of it. So it's foolishness. And that's why they crucified Jesus, is because they didn't get what he was saying. Nobody did. Once the Holy Spirit comes, now, they, now the apostles understand, and then they can teach others. But this church in Corinth wasn't thinking spiritually. They were thinking in the flesh, in the world. And that's why I say there's not really much difference, because if you think with the flesh, you're thinking physically. You're thinking lusts. You're thinking this world. You're thinking what's going on here. You're not walking in the Spirit, which is the point. That's, that's the commonality between those who haven't heard the gospel and these carnal Christians who aren't living the gospel. And so when you start reasoning with merely human thinking, you'll wind up with all kinds of problems in terms of doctrine. And that's what the Corinthians were seeing. And I've discussed that we see the same thing in our world, that we've got all kinds of different, well, I follow this, and I follow that, whether we're talking about denominations or we're talking about things like Calvinism versus Arminianism. I, I think there's a, some bad assumptions they share that are carnal thinking, that you, you got to get past that to understand what the scripture says. But regardless, that, that's what Paul says is the basis for divisions like that in the church, is you're not walking in the spirit, you're not thinking spiritually, you're thinking like mere humans that are trying to figure out God on your own. And he says that he's going to come and deal with it if he has to. So y'all deal with it on your own. Y'all do the right thing rather than me having to come and discipline. And that's where we left off. And I'm going to read those last couple of verses because it flows in to the beginning of this chapter as he changes subjects, but it flows out of the other. Let's take a look. 
Now some are puffed up, as though I would not come to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will ye? Shall I come to you with a rod, or in love, and in the spirit of meekness? So that's where we left off last week. Now he continues. It's reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Now I'm going to leave the scripture up there for a minute. Take a look and see if you see the connection. This is one of those kind of teaching points that it's it's the seminary secrets. This is what they, they teach pastors in seminary that the average person just never gets shown and it's not really that hard. But for some reason, it's this super secret makes pastors better thing. What's the connection? Do you see that he's challenging those that are puffed up in verse 19? And then when he brings up the subject of fornication, he says they're puffed up, they're proud over this sin rather than mourning over it. Apparently, this is telling us some of the content of this false teaching, and he's going to address more of it as he goes on. He's going to resolve some of these disputes. And probably in some cases, he's in favor of one, and in some cases, he's in favor of another. And in some cases, he's going to tell them something totally different than none of them are saying. But regardless, since we don't know the details, uh, we, we can't say exactly how that fell out. But it seems to me, just reading this, that this sexual immorality being common is part of that teaching that this was okay. And we're really going to see that when we get to chapter 6 because he's attacking the, the idea that I'm not under the law. I can do whatever I want. And that, that's, what he, that's what we'll get into next time. But in this passage, he's saying, look, fornication is widespread. Now, what's fornication? Most people would say, oh, it's sex before marriage. But the Greek term is a little broader than that. And it's, it's consistently translated fornication in the King James. Uh, many other translations will say sexual immorality. Uh, so you, you, and I think that's probably, a, that's a modern term for a way to look at it. Fornication really, this, this Greek term simply means anything that is sexually immoral. It's a very broad term. Adultery is included. So there's not a distinction in Paul's writing between fornication and adultery. Adultery would be included in fornication, okay? So would homosexuality, so would bestiality, so would sex before marriage, so would orgies. I, I won't go on with the list. You get the idea. Everything, the, the, by the way, the Greek word is porneia, and it's where we get our word pornography, graphy being pictures, right? So it's sexually immoral pictures. It's, that'll give you an idea of what the word means and where, where we're going here. So there's this sexual immorality among you. And he addresses some other kinds elsewhere. So uh, it, it's pretty broad. But here he's going to be real specific. And this kind of sexual immorality that I'm talking about now, man, even the Gentiles know this is wrong. And they're bad. They don't know God at all. They have orgies at their, at their parties, honoring these gods at their, at their guild parties and so forth, their guild dinners. Um, they have they have temple prostitutes and things like that. So um, homosexuality in some forms is okay in their culture. And even they know this is wrong. That's bad. What's what's so bad here? A man has his father's wife. And here he's he's looking back to the Old Testament partly. And and this was 
one of the prohibitions in the law. And in Amos, it's one of the things that God calls out very specifically. That He says, you're doing the sins that the Canaanites did. They caused me to drive them out of the land. And now you're doing it. And guess what's going to happen to you? It's, it, God hates it that much. This isn't a part of the Jewish law. It's something he punished the Canaanites for that weren't under the law. So this, this is kind of a big deal. And part of the reason it's such a big deal is it challenges the family order. If, if you'll recall, the, uh, the, the kings of Israel, uh, David's son Absalom, when he rebelled, when he tried to overthrow the throne, one of the first things he did was go sleep with all his father's concubines to show, I'm the king, these are mine. And, and so it's, it's a son usurping his father's place in the family order. It's not honoring your father, um, in addition to just the sexual immoral grossness of uh, incest. So it, it's, it's a challenge to the social order is the other reason that the Gentiles wouldn't stand for it. Uh, and, and Paul's saying the same thing. Look, guys, you, you can't simply challenge the social order in such a way that even the people outside the church are like, yeah, yeah that's over the top. You just can't do it, okay? This is wrong. And you know it's wrong. And what's your reaction? You should have mourned. You should have been sad that this sort of thing's happening among you. Instead, you're proud of it. And it seems, again, from context, and we'll get to more of this next week, that what they were saying is, well, I'm not under the law. I can do whatever I want. Jesus set me free from the law. There's nothing immoral. Jesus paid for all my sins, past, present, and future. Jesus still loves me. I can do everything. And as Paul writes elsewhere, shall I sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That's not the way it works. You know this, right? Would you actually say out loud, well, I can do that sin because Jesus forgives it anyway? And that just shows his grace and be proud of that? Yeah, no, you know that's bad doctrine. There are those today that still teach this, though. This is still a live issue. There's a teaching called hyper grace that some of the people take it to even a greater extreme than the core of that movement. And will say things like, we need to do things that most people would consider immoral to show how gracious God is that he forgives us no matter what we do. And they're proud of big drunken parties that they have with their church people. And, and no, that's not it. And I think probably if you've been following me at all, you, you were on the same page enough that you recognize that. You probably wouldn't have listened to me this long if you if we were, weren't at least in agreement at that point, right? So we, we know that's not true, that, that there is a level of behavior expected of God's people. And it's not just, I can do whatever I feel like. And that's, that's the doctrine, the false doctrine he's addressing here is that we can do whatever we want and we're not under the law, so it's okay. All right, so um, this is what he says to do. And here's where we get into church discipline. And this is something Jesus addressed. And I'll get into that side of it a little bit more in chapter six because it's a little more relevant there. But for this extreme immorality, this blatant, no kidding, even the pagans know this is wrong. Even the people who we look out there and go, wow, look how immoral those people are. Even they know this is wrong, okay? This is bad, bad. The, the, the Gentiles are looking into the church. Well, they're all Gentiles. So the, the pagans are looking into the church. The, in our society, the atheists are looking at the church and going, ooh, really? Okay, that, that level of, of bad. And this is what he says to do. 
I, for I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, there's some people read this as some kind of mystical... Paul is walking in the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's there, because where two or more gathered, there I am in your midst. And so Paul's sort of there by the Spirit. No. This was a common saying in antiquity. It just as commonly as we say, that I may not be there in body, but I'm there in Spirit. I'm with you. My heart's there with you, even though I can't be there. It, that's the idea, and it's as simple as that, okay? It, it, it doesn't carry any mystical meaning, as far as I can tell. And I'm not... Uh, one to say the Holy Spirit is should be minimized at all. All right, I'm not a cessationist, but that I just don't see that in the text. But so he's saying, it, it, pretend I'm there. Do this with my authority. My letter is there, and so I'm I'm telling you to do this. And so you, you doing this, you're doing it on my behalf, at my instructions, with my authority as an apostle, as if I was there with you. Okay. So he's he, the, here he's going to exert his authority. This is the rod he was talking about in the last chapter. Do I need to throw people out of the church? Is that the kind of discipline we need? And he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, he says, deliver him over to Satan. Now, what the heck does that mean? Well, we know that the purpose of the church is for us to lift one another up, to exhort one another, to build one another up, as Hebrews puts it, to provoke one another to love and good works. We always hear the forsake not the assembling of yourselves together quoted out of that and, and see you have to go to church. But we forget the before and after part that says that the purpose of that gathering is to provoke one another to love and good works, to encourage one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So that's what the church is for. And, and there's many, many passages that say this. We're, we're here for each other. We're here to minister to each other. We're here to help each other grow spiritually. We're here to hold each other accountable and say, what are you doing? Let's, let's do this right. Here, let me help. Um, we're here to teach each other. But the bottom line is we're, we're here to help each other become, as, as the motto of my last church was, well, okay, a couple churches ago, sorry. Um, but as the motto of one church I went to was, uh, make help each other become fully devoted followers of jesus christ it's discipleship that's what this is all about so when he says turn him over to satan he's saying kick him out of the church excommunicate that he will have no more support he's on his own and the world's not going to take him because he's a he says he's a child of god and the church won't take him because he's not acting like a child of god and he is out there all by himself and the enemy is going to eat him up and it's not going to be good. Okay? And what's he say the result is? The destruction of the flesh. This is the, the destruction of this carnal nature. Th that carnal nature needs to be crucified. It has to die. And he needs to learn that uh, that's, that's what you're doing there isn't good. You, you need to get with the program here. And repent. That the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now... This is going to give problems for eternal security doctrine. Because if this guy's not born again at all, what, why, is, why are we even worried about church discipline, as we're going to see in a minute? 
But the point is, we we want to walk in the Spirit. We want to... And, and I'm not saying I have the answer to that, by the way. Let me back up. I'm, I'm very confident in God's ability to keep me. I'm very confident that no one can take me out of his hand. Okay? But I, I think there's there's ways that we misinterpret that and misunderstand it. And I think this is one of them. That when you look at somebody and say, well, he was he was came down to the front and he said, he said his sinner's prayer and he was baptized and he's been a member of the church for a while. Well, and now Paul's saying about this guy, turn him over so that his spirit may be saved. That, <laughs> that's pretty straightforward. And I'll just let that speak for itself. Okay. Um, but the, the goal is, very clearly, regardless of the doctrinal implications, that you are trying to do this for love for that person. And you, the goal ultimately is that they repent. You have to do this in a way that repentance is possible. This is not a permanent excommunication. And in fact, in 2 Corinthians, we see the guy did repent. He was accepted back. And Paul says, I accept him back too. You need to fully accept him back. Okay? That's, that's part of the deal. So the goal is that this person repents and comes back and does things right and matures. That's the point of church discipline. And if we're doing it, in any other spirit or in a way that doesn't achieve that, we're doing it wrong. All right. And again, this is for very serious sin that brings embarrassment on the church in front of the world. Okay. There, there's another category we're going to talk about next week that they kind of mix, but not completely. All right. So let, let's go on here. Now he's going to address the church and their role in all this. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, so, <coughs> excuse me. Your pride in this you're glorifying this immoral behavior and saying, see how free we are in Christ is bad. It's not good at all. You're being carnal. You're being worldly. You're thinking in a human way. You've missed the point. Stop it. And then he tells us the other purpose of this church discipline and why this kind of treatment is to be done for somebody that, that the sin is so extreme that it's damaging the reputation of this church in the eyes of the world. Because obviously that hurts the church's mission, right? He's saying, look, a little leaven, a little yeast, leavens the whole lump of dough, right? Putting in a little more modern terms. That's what he's talking about, making bread. And then he brings in an image of Passover. It's custom in Passover to begin to purge the yeast out well in advance. And then as, as they get all, because they're required not have any yeast in their house. The law specifically stated that. And what they would do is, just before Passover starts, the man of the house would make a big show, it was a big ceremony, of going through the house with a light, searching for yeast. It's been cleaned top to bottom, swept, nowhere anything's hiding, even no, there's no yeast dust on the floor, because we took, we took that out. Okay, even if there's a dirt floor, we swept the dirt floor and got the top layer off, so we're sure there's no yeast. 
And but he's going around looking, making sure we didn't miss anything to make sure we're in compliance with the law. We got to be very careful to do that so that then our Passover meal is, is a true celebration and we're not under the curse of God for violating the law. That's the, that's the Jewish custom he's referring to. Okay. So in bringing that out here, he's saying it doesn't take but just the tiniest bit of yeast. And the bread you, the unleavened bread you break at your Passover meal isn't unleavened bread anymore. And there's an illusion here because the Last Supper and the establishment of the Lord's table was at the Passover meal. And he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. There's an allusion to the Lord's Supper here as well. And he's saying, look, you're, this kind of sin is making your celebration of the Lord's Supper invalid. Just like it would make the Passover invalid. It's making you not really being the church because you've got this sin in your midst that's so grievous that, yeah, you're, you're, you're just not there. You're, you're missing the point. You're not being the church. You need to be the people of God and be holy as he is holy, not walk in the flesh. So keep the feast. Do it right. Not with that old leaven. Get rid of that. Get rid of the malice and wickedness. And have unlimited bread of sincerity and truth. So he's saying he's, he is talking allegorically. But there's, again, there's an allusion to the Lord's Supper. and point blank you're 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 missing the point you're not doing it right so he's he's addressed baptism in the lord's supper here in terms of you're you're doing it wrong you're if you're being baptized in somebody else's name that ain't it and if you're being if your your celebration of the lord's table isn't the celebration of the lord's table because it's impure that's a problem too and he's going to address the lord's supper again later on and we'll we'll see that as we get there Okay, that that was a problem too, the way that they were handling that. All right, so let me let me wrap this up here. Because I think we are just about at the end, aren't we? Yep. One one more slide of scripture. So <clears throat> I wrote to you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with for, the fornicators of this world. Remember, this is sexually immoral, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. For then you must needs go out of the world. But now I've written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do ye not judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Okay. So here he's he's saying, and, and again, in saying don't even eat with them, he's talking about the shared meal, the love feast, as it's called elsewhere, that normally also included the celebration. This is my body. This is my blood. All right. That was that was just how they did it then. And he's saying, don't don't sit down and have a meal with them. Don't share your table with them. Don't don't have fellowship with them and identify as a peer, as a friend. Don't do that. OK, but he's saying that about only people in the church. That's interesting. Because we think we need to separate ourselves from the world and go, wow, look at that guy over there. I don't need to. And I'm not saying you really need to befriend people that are doing immoral things in the world. Don't get me wrong. But we shouldn't shun the world because the world's immoral. 
And we do that as the church, right? I constantly hear sermons about how them out there are so horrible and us in here, aren't we great? But guess what? We expect them out there to be horrible. That's their nature because it's sinful because they've Romans one, they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, right? They've worshiped the creator and creation instead of the creator and God's given them over to their lust to do all sorts of immoral things. We know this. I expect that behavior from them. And if I was going to avoid sinful people in the world, I'd have to leave the world is what Paul says. Make sense? Put another way, I hear an awful lot about boycotts of companies that support this cause or that cause. And if that's what your conscience tells you to do, that's what you believe God is telling you to do, then you need to do it. But it, it just as an illustration of the principle here, if you could not do business with any company that had that gave money to causes you disagree with or that supported causes you disagreed with or had business practices that you disagree with morally, you're probably not doing business with much of anybody. Right? Think it through. We tend to get real outraged by the things that become public, but the reality is it's all of them. So what are you going to do? Right? And that's what Paul's saying. You'd have to leave the world. That's not what I'm talking about. God judges those people. They're in rebellion against God. He'll deal with them at that point. That's not the issue. But that's not our place. What we need to do is bring them the gospel. And to do that, we're going to have to talk to them, not say, oh, oh, you're too immoral. I got to stay away from you. But inside the church, people that are blatantly immoral and don't care, don't associate with them as Christian brothers and sisters. That's what Paul says. Oh, because that's not the gospel. So it's uh it's an it's a different take than what we usually have in churches. But it's what the scripture says. And next time we're gonna get into chapter six that talks about um when your brother you have something against your brother or your brother has something against you and getting the civilian authorities involved and so we continue this you're an embarrassment to the church before the of the church before the world and i think that's the real message for us here is that sometimes we behave in a way that when the world looks at us they go i don't want to hear that gospel you talk about a life change that christ gives you're worse than I am. There's too many hypocrites in church. It's another way to put that. You hear it all the time, right? I don't want to go to church because the people that are there, all they do is stab each other in the back. They gossip. They talk about each other. I'm I'm better off just having friends that are non-Christians because at least they, we we can care about each other and get along. I've heard it. I've seen it. And it's not good. And it's an embarrassment to Christ. And we've got to address it. First in ourselves, I've got to address it in me. What am I doing that does this? And then we've got to address it collectively. That's what the scripture says. It's not me. Argue with Paul. Or the Holy Spirit that inspired him. Because that's what it comes down to. 
is we need to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. And as Paul says elsewhere, these are works of the flesh. And they're not what we're going to do if we're led by the spirit. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the guidance it gives. I thank you for the rich theological passages that we have to meditate on and think on. And they're just so deep. But I, I thank you in this case for passages that are easy, that are practical, that don't require a lot to understand what's being said. Passages that are written for babies and toddlers that can understand the simple instructions. So God, I pray in my life that you show me the things that I do that are an embarrassment to you and your family. Show me what I need to fix. Show me how I can do better. And then, Lord, for us, I pray that you bring conviction in your church. That you show us the things we need to deal with. That you give us courage and strength to do that. Lord, let us bring glory to your name. And let us act in a way in front of those outside the church that they want to know this Jesus rather than us turning them away. Lord, our heart is to bring you glory. Please help us to do that and let your will be done in our lives as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.